And good morning. <clears throat> We're reading for 1 Corinthians 5, and that's the whole chapter 1 to 13. <clears throat> it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellow, put out a fellow, out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have also passed judgment on the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus, on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, as I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on that day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may have a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ our, for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or the swindlers, idolatries. In that case, you would, have, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Well, I came across some nicknames that somebody had for their colleagues at work. I love a nickname. Nicknames are great, aren't they? Here is some. I've taken out the rude one, so don't worry. Here's one. Harvey Norman, one bloke was called. Three years, no interest. Sensolite, only works if somebody walks past. Blister, there's a name for one bloke, appears when all the hard work is done. Deck chair, any guesses? Folds under pressure. And here's my particular favourite, one somebody works with who's called Perth. Any ideas? Three hours behind everyone else. Now, I love a nickname, and lots of us have worked with people with nicknames like that uh, because they don't do their jobs properly. Uh, now, should they be left to it, or should they face disciplinary action? I wonder what's the most severe discipline you've ever received, or what's the most severe discipline you've ever dished out? 
So often we think about discipline in terms of the workplace or school, but I reckon where we feel the weight of discipline or punishment most is in our relationships, isn't it? When you let someone close to you down and feel the weight of that relationship being temporarily cut off or at least limited, that really hurts. A friend stops returning your calls. A family member keeps conversations on the service level. The punishment dished out makes us sit up and take notice, really take notice, because those people matter to us. With today's passage, we're thinking about the popular topic of church discipline. How should we as a church deal with persistent, deliberate, public sin by one of us, at least temporarily, um, at least temporarily cutting them off? And you'll have noticed, no doubt, when we were Hilton read for us, the presenting offence that raises issue, issue is a bloke sleeping with his stepmother. Incest. Ugh. And we might be thinking, well, that's never going to happen here. So why are we worrying about it? What's it got to do with me? Well, do notice that in verse 11, Paul opens up the categories much more broadly. But what I want us to see this morning is at the heart of this passage is that Sin really matters to God, and we really matter to God. Sin really matters to God, and we really matter to God. We've been seeing in this series so far that for the Corinthians, their problem was they as a church were getting everything upside down, being shaped more by their Corinthian culture than by the cross. And Paul's antidote has been to keep bringing them back to the apparently foolish message of the cross, the message that teaches us to be humble, because if that's the solution, how bad must our problem be? And the message of the cross that keeps us assured that we're that bad, and yet Jesus loves us so much, he chose to go through that for us. It keeps us returning to the cross that we only boast about Jesus. So the question for the Corinthians and for us, as we get conflicting messages from our friends and colleagues and family and and our culture, question for us and for them, how much does sin matter to us? And how much do we matter to each other? Do we matter to each other enough to overcome the awkward, to overcome our polite Adelaide norms that say, Uh, My sin is none of your business, and help each other to not sin. Now then, ideally, it would have stopped last week, because chapter 5 begins a new section, really, and we'll pick it up again next year. So Paul so far has addressed how their worldliness has caused division amongst them and pride, and now he addresses how their upside-down thinking is causing them problems in immoral behavior. Today, we're not going to zoom in on the behavior itself, but more the question of how to deal with it together as a church. Um, So there's an outline in your leaflets there. We'll see their upside-down judgment of the situation and see what the true gospel judgment is, what they must do, why they must do it, and how that judgment is to be limited. So first of all, upside-down judgment. They ought to be saying, you, not Yahoo! Verse 1, 
It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not even the pagans tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Now, that almost certainly means his stepmother, not his biological mum. But still, I mean, it would get very complicated when he comes to buy a birthday card, wouldn't it? You know, is it for mum? Is it for my beloved? And Valentine's Day would be a nightmare. With his... Verse 2, you are proud. So that could mean the proud of him in that situation itself. But actually, it says even their local pagan Corinthian culture, a culture that, had, that was really sexed up, had, had temple prostitutes and everything, that said your body is just a thing and you can just feed its desires. Even they knew that incest was a bad idea. So the church hasn't picked it up from their culture. I think what Paul is saying here is, how can you lot have disappeared so far up your own backsides in being pleased with yourself? How can you think, be so proud of what a great church you are, when this obvious sin that makes even the local sex workers blush is going on? And the original grammar of the the original Greek helps us to know that this is an ongoing, persistent, permanent arrangement that we're talking about. A lifestyle setup, not a one-off giving in to temptation. And it's... This has been going on at least as long as it's been taken to be found out, written to Paul about. Paul gets his letter and sends a letter back. So it's, it's not a sort of flash in the pan thing. It's been going on a while. Now then, I don't suppose incest is as much of a temptation for us. Not for one minute. But this does come in a broader section that we'll talk about what we do with our bodies and I won't go into that now. I'll just give you the headline and look at chapter 6, 18 to 20 later. The headline, our bodies are part and parcel of what Jesus has saved from sin at great cost on the cross. And the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies. We're God's temple. So God really cares what we do with our bodies and really cares that we honor him with him. What we do physically does really matter. And we'll talk about that more when we return to 1 Corinthians next year. For now, let's turn to Paul's emphasis in this passage, how church should deal with persistent, unrepeated, public, deliberate sin. So what they must do, our next heading. The man involved in this sin must be treated like a non-Christian. He must be treated like an unbeliever. Verse 2. You're proud, but shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So the gist of those verses is clear. When the congregation is together, judgment must be passed and the individual concerned excluded. And five times we see the same idea in this passage. So verse 2, put out of your fellowship. Verse 9, don't associate with him. Verse 11, don't even eat with him. Verse 13, expel the wicked person. And then the harshest sounding one, verse 5, that we just heard, 
hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, to be clear, all five of those verses, they're talking about the same thing. So destruction of the flesh doesn't mean we take him out of church and kill him. Because if it did, then we wouldn't have to say, don't eat with him as well, would we? So that's all right. No one's getting killed. He's saying he has, he's been asked to leave the meetings of God's people and returned to the world. Because it, the way to picture it is this. In the New Testament, there are two realms. There's the world out there that isn't believing and trusting in Jesus, where Satan is temporarily boss in a limited way. The realm of sin and death. And then there's the realm in here for Christians where Jesus is boss, his kingdom of life and light. So when you became a Christian, uh, it says Colossians 1.13, God rescued us from that dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We live in different worlds in the same world. So the intention of Paul's instruction here is to send this persistently sinful bloke, back out into the world, back out into the realm of Satan, leaving under no illusions that he's living as one one in Jesus' realm. You think of it as deporting him because he's consistently showing in his behavior that he's against Jesus' rule in Jesus' kingdom. At verse 3, this is, have a look on your leaflets, this is Paul's judgment. But it's not that Paul's just in a grumpy mood or something, feeling ungenerous. No, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit with God's word. And verse 4, he wants these words brought into their gathering as if he himself is there. Just as the same spirit of God is with all of them wherever they are, uniting them in purpose. So, chuck a man out of church, it says. Now, that does sound... A bit harsh and judgmental to our ears, I reckon. But Paul's only saying, only following what Jesus himself taught. This is worth looking at. Matthew 18, verse 15 and 17. This is the foundation of how we think about discipline in church. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Happy days result. So normally church placement begins with one another. Okay. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So it could be that one of us is just oversensitive or read the situation wrong or something. Get other people involved if it's not resolved. Verse 17. If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, even to everyone's collective wisdom and sitting under the word, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So you see, this case of this Corinthian bloke is at the end of this long, careful, loving process. It's the last resort. Jesus calls us to give one another every chance to be helped realize we're in sin and to turn away from that sin in repentance so that an expulsion like this is rare because normally we nip things in the bud and it's not for every incidence of sin 
or else that's, this is all we'd ever do, isn't it? And we'll see later in Corinthians, some of them are still visiting prostitutes. And Paul doesn't say for them to get expelled. Now, I think the difference is this man sleeping with his stepmom isn't battling with sin and temptation, failing and then repenting and starting over again. Because that's the normal Christian experience. No, the problem is this bloke's set up, and this is a big feature of sexual sin, especially. He set things up as a lifestyle in open, persistent rebellion against the gospel. I was guaranteeing, even sort of setting things up so that he's really trying to sin daily on purpose. It's planning to sin. So a public expulsion like this one then ought to be done rarely. It ought to be through gritted teeth, with reluctance, with sadness, after lots of trying every other way to sort it out. So what would that look like here amongst us if it did come to this? Well, I said treat them like, like a non-Christian, and Jesus said treat them like pagans and tax collectors. Now, we'd love to have pagans and tax collectors and unbelievers here at church on Sunday. And if we really believe God makes a difference in us, God really changes as we sit under his word together, we don't want to, wouldn't want to ban somebody from attending here and being part in the service. But we'd have to make it clear they're not fully part of things. Certainly, we wouldn't have communion. They wouldn't be allowed to have communion or ask them not to take it. Because that's a privilege for family members. That's the way of saying, I'm depending on Jesus. And you can't do that on one hand, and then on the other say, with your lifestyle, I don't care what Jesus thinks. And I think not having communion is at least what's in view in verse 11 when it says, do not even eat with them. Could mean excluding somebody from growth group. However we would do it, it's been really clear, things are not okay. You are not a regular member of our fellowship anymore whilst you persist in this way. Whatever shape it would take, we'd make those decisions carefully, prayerfully, always holding in mind the why of why we need to take such action, tough action. Why? The why of the judgment. We cut him off from church so that he doesn't get cut off from God. We cut him off from church so that he doesn't get cut off from God. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So destruction of the flesh, that means something happens to his sinful nature that's against God, his flesh, as a result of him leaving the church. So here's what we hope and pray will happen. He'll leave in a huff, probably, probably carrying on in his sin for a while. But now he's under no illusion that living a life like that is compatible with him being part of the people of God. And as he lives, carries on in that sin, he, he lives with the consequences of it. All the relational fallout, all the shiny honeymoon period wears off, and eventually they're picking up one another's towels off the bathroom floor. And all that, without the comfort of thinking he's eventually going to get away with it, that he's all right, he's in Jesus' kingdom. 
Hopefully he'll wake up to the danger that he's in. Got a picture here. Thanks, Robert. Hopefully he'll realize he's not just a little bit off track. You widen that out now. He'll realize he's in danger of facing eternal judgment without Jesus to save him, having rejected Jesus with his lifestyle. He needs to see his behavior is active rejection of Jesus. So the aim is to bring him to his senses so that he returns in, returns in repentance and faith and is saved. It's forcing him to choose between pleasing, keeping his flesh in the realm of Satan happy or his spirit following Jesus, making him pick and choose. So another way to look at it is rather than thinking that's harsh and judgmental, we could ask, wouldn't it be unloving to this man not to do that? Is it loving to affirm someone in their sin if we really think it will lead to them rejecting Jesus and facing eternal judgment? We cut him off from church, hopefully temporarily, so that he doesn't get cut off from God. That's one reason why. But it's not just about him. He's also expelled because treating unrepented sin as if it's normal and okay is damaging to the church, to the body as a whole. If we didn't deal with sin like this, would we really be loving God's church? Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're in the, in the bakery. I've got a video here. Thanks for it. So we're in the bakery. So the little yeast, that would be like a, a gooey lump of old dough kept in the corner of the kitchen for weeks, months, year. You'd make your new dough with it, mixing with the new dough, um, that lump of yeast with its unique biome. But always keep a bit back for the next batch. And apparently each bakery that does this has its own unique lump, so it has its own unique taste. So if the baker kept it in his sock 100 years ago, you can still taste it in the loaf of bread. What Paul's saying is, if you allow people to shack up with their stepmother and go on treating them as Christians, you'll allow that way of thinking, that culture, to spread through the whole church. So it won't just affect him and his family, it'll affect the whole loaf, the whole church. The whole church will end up uh, leavened with sexual sin. Because how are we going to convince anyone to avoid sex before marriage? How are we going to convince anyone, marriage is okay, but it's better to be single? How are we going to convince anyone not to commit adultery when Mr. Complicated Birthday Card Arrangement is treated like an ordinary brother? As if it doesn't matter. Now, this doesn't mean us going around with a clipboard every Sunday. So, uh, how have you sinned this week? What do we uh, need to do about it? 
We don't need to be like a cult that coercively controls each other's behavior to make sure that we're pure and really stamp down on any transgression. Because Paul says in verse 7, we're already pure. We are the unleavened with none of the nasty um, microbes in. On the cross of Christ, our, Jesus, our Passover lamb, he sacrificed himself and he's made it as if we never sinned. Jesus has made it as if we never sinned. There are no microbes in us. There's no yeast in us. When we come to our final judgment before God, all of those nasties are folded into the cross instead. So the message is we are to be pure because Jesus has made us pure. We're to be pure because Jesus has made us pure. We are to be what we are. Leaving out the old ingredients of sin, enjoying a life of sincerity and truth that lines up with the gospel instead. So we deal with persistent unrepentant sin in this serious way so that the individual may be saved and so the church is protected from treating sin like it doesn't matter. But none of this means that we go around judging unbelievers. Uh, last heading, limited judgment. There is very limited scope for who Christians should judge and sanction. Only people claiming to be a Christian brother or sister. So verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even associate with, eat with such people. Well, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So those who profess belief in the gospel but refuse to repent of persisting with overt ungodliness, they're the ones to be judged for their sake and for ours. But we shouldn't expect a gospel lifestyle from non-gospel people. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to care about Christian things. Because unbelievers live in a different realm to us. They are God's business, they're not ours. So we have God's compassion for them, but we're not God. We don't have God's judgment for them. We have God's compassion for them, but not God's judgment. We leave that to God. See, we can't see each other's hearts. We talked about this last week, I think. We can't see each other's hearts, but we can see outward signs of faithfulness in our behaviors, in our attitude to sin. But for an unbeliever, all, that, all their behavior shows about an unbeliever is that they're not a believer. And they already know that. But all of this makes us ask the question, why does there have to be any judgment at all? 
Isn't it easy to just let things go? Why can't God just, God just understand that sometimes people fall in love with the wrong person, we're prone to sin, and just let it go? Well, it's because God sees sin and all its consequences without all the gloss and the dressing up and the sweet packaging. He sees it in all its grubby details for the destructive evil that it is. So it would be wrong of God to just leave it be. And God is never wrong. He's only ever good. So God judging, God judging us shows that we matter to him. Shows that we matter to him. If you go, so our children, the primary school, uh, they always had an end of year school musical. And to be honest, when I went and watched that, I wasn't all that bothered about how the other kids got on. But your own children in something like that, or your grandchildren, or friends, you really notice them. You really care how they go. And you'll tell them how proud you are of their talent, or, or their effort, or, or hopefully both. Hopefully both. And it will be based on what you saw and what you heard. Because you notice them. And you noticing them helps them know that they matter to you. The Corinthians were letting a bloke sleep with his stepmother and still being proud of what a great church they were because sin didn't matter to them and this bloke didn't matter to them, at least not enough to help him out of it. He wasn't as important to them as their own narrative of what a great church they were was. So they didn't give two hoots about whether he seemed to be giving up on Jesus or not. God judging us shows that sin matters to him and we matter to him. And us disciplining one another like this shows that sin matters to us and we matter to one another. So again, to finish, how, does, how much does sin matter to us? How much do we matter to each other? I saw when the boys were little, we used to go take them swimming, and there was a family changing room with cubicles and stuff. So, you know, both genders in there. And one time I saw this mum come out of the cubicle, and she had a jumper on inside out. And I felt kind of embarrassed for noticing. I'm like, do I tell her? Do I make myself blush in order to spare her blushes? Or another example, out one time in a pub, young bloke comes out of the bathrooms, a proper rooster, looking suave, shiny clothes, really pleased himself. Oh, do I tell him there's a long line of toilet paper stuck to his foot going all the way back to the bathroom? Do we matter to each other enough to overcome the awkward and help each other not to sin? So as I said, ideally we never get to this situation of having to expel someone. But to avoid that is going to mean making the sacrifice and taking the risk of having painful conversations with one another in order to lovingly, with grace, correct and rebuke one another. 
So being getting to that situation is going to mean doing the hard yards of spending time together, getting to know one another, being open to one another. We need to be really clear-sighted on what is loving and what isn't. Knowing that it's not always loving to go along with someone, to lead them to it or affirm them in everything they do. We need to be willing to be countercultural in minding one another's business. See, it's not the case in church, as the world asserts, that my body and what I do is nothing to do with you. Mind your own business. That's just not true in church. My body is part of the body. And if it's dishonoring God, that could be a problem for all of it, all of us. And as for our unbelieving friends and family and colleagues and neighbors, the best way to show them that they matter is by leading with the gospel, not leading with the morality that the gospel leads to. Leading with the gospel, not leading with the morality that comes as a result of the gospel. So that means we don't cut them off. We wisely, with wisdom and carefully, hang out with them, knowing your own limits and temptations. Hang out with them. Don't judge them. Don't cut them off. Because how else are they going to hear the gospel? It's highly likely that you're the only Christian that they know. You're like this CMS ministry, ministry worker, missionary to your friends and family and neighbors. So show them the goodness of being made pure by Jesus before complaining about their impurity. Because without Jesus, you and I would be just as lost as anyone. We'd be just as yeasty a lump of bread instead of what we are, called out as his holy people. Sin matters to God. We matter to God. So in love and truth, let's help keep one another pure in response to God's grace for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, Then Jesus, all the nasties have been folded into the cross, that we are pure before you on judgment day. I pray you'll help us to build relationships where we can um, lovingly and with grace and joyfully hold each other to account and be held to account. Help us not to be fluffy, but deep able to correct each other without being um, judgmental, but appropriately judging to help us grow to maturity in Christ. And for our unbelieving people in our lives who we just want to have your compassion for, please defend us from being all judgy about them. Help us to trust you with that. Help us to show the joy of being pure in Christ. Amen.